listeners, readers, all you curious people who love curious literature, I'm so glad you've tuned in. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, former adjunct professor at Berkeley, uh, editor, lecturer, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. Today, we are diving into Gustave Flaubert's unbelievably revolutionary Madame Bovary. So, a couple of tips, as always, uh, very briefly. One is that it's ideal if you can have the book in front of you. If you don't, not a huge deal. We're going to be doing quite a bit of close reading, uh, looking at the level of the sentence, word choice, that sort of thing. But if you don't have your text in front of you as you're listening, no prob. I will um, be sure to make sure that you're anchored in the text as we move along. If you would like a somewhat more immersive experience, if you'd like to see how I've conjured yet another background from uh, yet another space in the exact same office, um, in my office here in my home, check out the YouTube channel where you can also today see what I think is actually like a very Madame Bovary kind of an outfit that I've got going on. Um, as always, the lecture will be presented in three parts. We have the first part, which is just gonna discuss why we are reading this book. Um, a little bit about the biography of Flaubert, and then we'll dive into the prose, taking care to look very carefully at, um, you know, the, at the title and at the dedication, a couple of different things, and then we'll dive into the prose itself. In the second time, the second section of this um, lecture series, we're going to talk about how revolutionary this novel is, both in terms of um, having been the very first realist novel, although Flaubert uh, disavowed any uh, membership in any kind of actual literary school. We're going to talk about why this is often seen as the very first realist novel and in fact uh, sort of the realist, uh, you know, sine qua non, the realist, is that what that means? I think that's what that means. It's the, it's the realist, you know, it's the best. It's the non plus ultra. Is that right? Um, anyway, so you should, this is, um, if you're interested in, in uh, you know, literary schools such as realism, then this is, um, the second part is where you're going to learn about this book as a realist text. The, then we will also be discussing in that second chunk the very revolutionary free indirect style. If these things are sounding confusing, um, I will definitely break them down for you and they're not confusing. It's simply sort of fancy words to describe why, in fact, this novel is so genius. And then in the last section, in the third part of this installment, we'll be talking some more about the incredible prose. All of, all of these sessions will really delve into why the prose is so exceptional, um, but we'll talk a little more about the prose. And then we're going to talk about irony and pathos. So on television these days, you all who have listened um, at all know that I love television and there's no genre I like better than, than sort of um, very dark comedies. And I think in lots of ways, what Flaubert is doing here is a dark comedy. And the reason for that is there's lots and lots of irony in the novel, but it's really, um, it's, it's sort of hand in hand with this incredible pathos so that you have this real dose of, of, of sort of humor and of Gustave Flaubert poking fun at the bourgeoisie, but also this real sense of pathos. You're really, um, you're feeling for these people as much as you are, um, you know, sort of chuckling at their, um, at their tr trials and tribulations. And then we're going to talk about translation. I'm an absolute nut about translation. I love it. In the third section, we're going to discuss some of the real challenges of translation. And then we'll look at the close of the novel. 
Okay, so we're gonna dive on into this concept of why we should read Madame Bovary. And you know, it may seem obvious just because it's one of these sort of huge classics, but that is not, um, for me, that's never reason enough to read, besides there are lots and lots of classics we could be reading, and we will over the course of time, but um, this is kind of, I think this is a very good one to, to dig into. So it is a 19th century novel, which is, it's, it's, um, it's a very different animal than the 20th century novel, obviously, and then certainly than the, uh, the contemporary novel. But because in many ways it was so revolutionary, for me, it, it doesn't feel quite as old as it is. Uh, it was actually published in 1857. So it's 166 years old, which in some ways sounds like too recent for it to have been published. And also it seems like just absolute eons ago, especially when you look at what's happening in the novel and, and how far we've come in terms of industry, industry and technology. And I mean, I guess women's rights, although that's you know somewhat debatable these days. Uh, but so we're looking at a novel that was set in the middle of the 19th century, um, it was the Second Empire in France, so it's one of those Napoleons. So it's a still this large struggle between the monarchy and um, and the people. And we're, it's it's part of the revolutionary nature of the novel is in fact that we are talking about the middle class. We are talking about the bourgeoisie. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk. I, I think it's important to read if this question is sort of why are we reading this. Part of it is how revolutionary it was, both in terms of style, um, but also in terms of content. So um, one thing I want to read quickly, I will be pulling almost exclusively from, um, I love Lydia Davis. I'm a huge fan of Lydia Davis. And, and I think her, uh, she's translated a lot of Proust, a lot of French in general, but a lot of Proust I'm looking over to that wall because that's where all of my French um, novels are, including her uh, version of Swan's Way. But um, she has an introduction here too that I think is very wise. On page 11 of this introduction, she says, uh, its radical nature is paradoxically difficult for us to see. Its approach is familiar to us for the very reason that Madame Bovary permanently changed the way novels were written thereafter. So this is Lydia Davis, who is an incredible scholar, an incredible writer in her own right. Um, but but she is, is really pointing out the way that in some ways this book does feel very sort of contemporary and modern because it really was revolutionary. Um, and again, not only in the style, I've now lost my note card here, oh yeah. Um, not only in terms of style, but also in terms of content. So we are, um, you know, the title alone tells us that there is a woman at the center of this novel. And it's not, um, it's, it's a woman who, um, no spoilers here, but, you know, things don't go super great for Emma Bovary. Um, but there are a lot of strong women in the novel. There's a lot of um, questions about the role of women. There's a lot of questions about consumerism. There's a lot of content in the book about sort of, um, you know, social climbing and about class and about education that are all really, really relevant still today in the 21st century. The other reason I think to read a novel like this is simply the question of endurance. There is a reason why this book, I mean, I literally, like I have four different copies right at hand. Um, I didn't even go look in Bill's office, in my husband's office, um, because it's it's one of these books that, you know, if a new translation comes out, I will buy it. And I read it probably every few years. Uh, it's, it's just an incredibly important, enduring novel. And I think it is always interesting to look at what it is that has survived. I recently read a book um, by Gertrude Atherton about California that was actually amazing. But that is an example 
um, my, my poor friend Gertrude Atherton. Um, that is a good example of a novel that has not endured. It is still in print um, in kind of one of these weird prints where you get a sense that they've just made it for you, um, you know, in the back of the factory and shipped it off. Um, but it is not, <laughs> it is no um, Madame Bovary and our friend Gertrude is no Gustave Flaubert. So I think it is interesting to look at why something like this has endured. And in fact, why Madame Bovary is such a, a, a cultural icon, I think, in lots of ways. Okay. Now we're going to discuss a little, little bit about Gustave Flaubert's uh, biography. He was born in 1821 in Rouen. You know, I think he was born in 1812. I think I've done a little bit of a numerical switcheroo here. I'm going to go back and take a look at that. Uh, it was either 1812 or 1821, I'll get back to you, in Rouen, in Normandy. So um, those of you who are watching the YouTube channel, there will be an image of that at the end, the map of, of France. Um, I think probably most of you are familiar where Normandy is. It's kind of up, um, you know, in the, in the, what is that? That is the northwest of France, right across the English Channel. It's kind of in that saddle that sits on the English Channel, um, at, you know, right across from England. Um, and it's a part of France that, that was, you know, the Normans came and the weather is cold and it's kind of, you know, you think of, um, you know, bulky sweaters and you think of rain and you think of um, more like England weather, certainly than we would find in some place like Provence. Um, he was the second son of a doctor and in lots of ways this freed him up. So he had an older brother, uh, his father was a surgeon, which was a very important um, thing in their family. This father was very accomplished and Gustav was not so accomplished. His older brother was a surgeon and, and that sort of took a lot of the pressure off. He was going to go to law school, and in law school, which he was not loving, he had the first of, um, of a series of epileptic seizures that he had, and um, he was brought home largely by his mother, who uh, he was very close with. It sounds very much like Proust as I am saying that. They both were very close with their mothers, um, but he was not sad about leaving law school, and at that point, he essentially decided uh, that he, as, an, as someone in the upper middle class in Normandy, son of a surgeon, he was going to devote his self, uh, himself to writing. Um, and he lived for a long, long time with his mother and a niece that he was raising in uh, a little town called Yvetot. I think that's correct. Um, which, interestingly, this is the same part of France that Annie Ernaud comes from. And we are going to read, this is the next step in my in my queue, is um, Annie Ernaud's The Years and Happening, which she just won the Nobel Prize last year. And I, I have always, always, always loved her work, and I'm dying to dig into it. But one thing that I have found very, very interesting is that Flaubert, who is from Normandy and is writing about the bourgeoisie, um, you know, predated by 150 years-ish, this, um, this second person who was winning the Nobel Prize, who is from literally like his exact same town, and who was writing about a lot of the same issues. I'm really, really uh, psyched to look at the, at the sort of interplay between the two of them, because uh, Annie Ernaud, part of what is revolutionary is she has a woman oftentimes at the center of her fiction in much the same way that Gustave Flaubert has um, Madame Bovary in the center of his, you know, his main work. Um, 
but also uh, Annie Arnaud is really talking about the working class in lots of ways. And, and she becomes an intellectual and, and sort of um, is able to look at it from a very writerly point of view. But she was born not the son of a certain, well, she was not born the son of a surgeon. She was born the daughter of, of people who have a, a, a cafe, épicerie, like a little store cafe kind of a thing. So she really brings the working class to the fore in a way um, that that is really revolutionary and deserving of the Nobel Prize, apparently, and also was totally revolutionary in terms of style. So um, tune in for that. But I do think the echoes are really interesting here about uh, both of them being uh, from Normandy. And um, uh, I, I, I like the resonance there of each of them as being revolutionary in his or her own way. Um, Gustave Flaubert had a couple of different um, male friends that he was very, very close with, one of whom he uh, is, is the dedicatee, if that's a word, of uh, Madame Bovary. But he also had kind of a love affair with Louise Collet, and we're very happy that he did. Uh, it was over a long, long period of time, although geographically they were separated for most of it. We're also happy about that because um, this love affair that he was having in this very intimate relationship with her and the fact that she was far away means that Flaubert, who would write from sort of noon um, all the way, he would sleep until noon and then write, I think, from the afternoon all the way until the wee hours of the morning. And then generally he would write a letter to Louise. So we have a lot of information about the composition and about the writing process, um, which which is super revealing and also very entertaining. The letters uh, that the two of them write back and forth are really pretty, pretty incredible. Okay, so um, now that we have discussed those two things, we're actually going to dive on into the text. So we're gonna uh, use we're gonna use today the this whole time all three sessions the Lydia Davis translation. I also have in the end when we talk about translation, I have the Stieg Müller, and then I also have um, two French versions that we're gonna take a look at, but. This is, I think, the most, um, it's the most interesting and feels in lots of ways like the most modern and, and frankly, the most funny and entertaining and kind of real uh, of, and, and, and more true, I think, to the text, as much as I am a judge of that, um, than, than some of the other translations, which tended to be much looser and made the prose much smoother uh, or omitted things or made it much more flowery. So uh, Lydia Davis is known for being excellent, excellent at translation. Obviously, she's translating Proust and Flaubert, but she's also known for being very, um, very true to the, to the spirit of the language, but also to the syntax. So we're going to dive on in. Um, I love this cover art. It's it to me, um, it, it, it doesn't actually speak that much. This is not the image in my mind that I had of, of Emma, um, but I love it nonetheless. It's very evocative and beautiful in lots of ways. Um, and the, the fact that the title of the book is Madame Bovary is very interesting in lots of ways. So if we turn to this title page here, we find something interesting, which is it says Madame Bovary Provincial Ways. So there is a subtitle here with this title, which is interesting because no one talks about the subtitle. It's not, people refer to the novel as Madame Bovary. Almost never do you have Madame Bovary, colon, provincial ways. So I looked at my, um, I got down my French versions and my maxi poche, like my, my kind of um, more pulpy, airporty version of Madame Bovary in French, does not in fact have anything about, um, it just it just says Madame Bovary on the title page, 
the Gallimard, which is the kind of more hoity-toity of my um, French versions, it does. And interestingly, it is called Mort, Mort du Provence. I'm sorry, du, du Provence here. You can see. So it's like the Moors, meaning like the, the customs. So it's customs of the province, um, not Provence, which is what I just said in French. Sorry, that was a mispronunciation. It's Meur de Provence, I think. I think that's like a decent, that's a decent pronunciation. Um, but it means it's it's like the, the, the um, one of the translations is manners of province or provincial manners. Um, and I like the fact that... Um, that Lydia Davis is is kind of expanding it a little bit because the mores of a community, meaning, you know, they're not just their manners. It's not just about etiquette. It's about kind of the ways of the people. Um, she is getting a little more to that, I think, with provincial ways. And importantly, this is not Provençal ways. It's it's talking about the the province in this case of Normandy, but um, province in the sense of provincial, not in the sense of the south of France specifically. Uh, so it's interesting because we're looking at Madame Bovary as an example or, a, you know, sort of a beacon or, uh, or an embodiment of provincial life. And the reason why that's important in part is because um, Flaubert, with this realism that, that he's sort of the, um, you know, the pioneer of, is working against some of this, um, you know, the 18th century enlightenment, and then a lot of the romanticism that came just before realism. So the romantics, um, there was a lot more poetry written, um, a lot more long odes, not so many novels. Um, you know, there were some, certainly. Um, but, but they would have been more gothic novels. They would have been more um, concerned about death and 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 um beauty and the sublime and it would have been sort of um uh, you know you think of like frankenstein or you think of something that's a little more fantastical too this is very rooted not in um you know the story of a monster or the story of a great love affair although it's the story of many mediocre love affairs um but it's very much it, it's more grounded it's more about the provinces so I actually think it's really um, noteworthy and cool to notice. I like the fact that Lydia Davis included it, and I like her translation. The American, not the American, the English translations before um, usually said provincial manners or the manners of the provinces. Um, I like provincial ways better. Okay, then we're going to move along a bit here. I love her introduction. As usual, totally no nonsense. Um, I mostly skipped the chronology. Oh! But we can check here and we can see that I was in fact correct. 1821, the birth of uh, Gustave Flaubert. So, um, and then we're gonna move right through the chronology, not too worried about that, um, to this, there's a first dedication and then a second dedication. So the first dedication is to Marie-Antoine Jules Senard. And importantly, this was the guy who was the lawyer who, um, Essentially, when when Flaubert's novel came out, it was they they were going to ban it, and the French government freaked out, and everybody freaked out because it was about a woman who was an adulterer. Never mind the fact that she does not come to a happy ending. Um, again, sorry for the spoilers. I'm assuming most people, even if you haven't finished the book, know that um, things don't go super great for our poor Emma. Um, but I love the middle of this here because. Um, not only did Senard do such a good job in defending um, the book, and in fact, also the prosecution did not do a great job because they basically upheld 
I did a lot of uh, research into this, um, into the, the trial. They did all of this stuff about how amazing the book was and how incredible the prose was and how people were going to really want to read this book. And then the book was going to be, um, you know, harmful for people because it's about a woman who has a lot of passion. So um, that backfired for them in some ways because then the book became wildly popular. So it reads right here. By its inclusion in your magnificent presentation of my case, this work of mine has acquired for me an unforeseen authority. So as um, you know, the saying goes, no, um, or sorry, all, pub all publicity is good publicity. Uh, in lots of ways, this trial, not only because the persecution was prosecution, wow, because the prosecution was, um, was upholding the incredible prose, uh, it also just the notoriety of having been brought up on charges of obscenity, um, you know, always, always good for a couple of readers. And in fact, in Flaubert's case, it was uh, very helpful, the whole, um, the whole trial. Then Louise Boulet is, is one of um, these, Maxime Duchamp is another one. These are very, very close friends of Flaubert's who read, um, constantly were reading his work. They would come over a lot and um, he would read his work aloud to them and he really valued their, um, their support and their, their perspectives on what he was doing. Okay, we're finally gonna dive into the book. Um, part one, here we are, there are three different parts um, and we're gonna dive into the first of them here. Right at the top. We were in study hall when the headmaster entered, followed by a new boy dressed in regular clothes and a school servant carrying a large desk. Those who were sleeping woke up and everyone rose as though taken by surprise while at work. There's so much um, important stuff that's happening. And any of you who uh, feel like one of the reasons why you want to tune in is to become a better reader or to have a richer experience, my best piece of advice is simply to pay attention. Um, not only to things like the title and, you know, you can do some sleuthing and figure out what's happening with dedications, but oftentimes the first paragraph is really important in the sense of setting the tone and of really, um, it's sort of a lot of signposts as to what might be most important in the work in your hands. Okay, we're going to take a look at this. So we were in study hall. It's really important here right from the start to know that we are talking about a collective. So in this case, it's a collective of students. Uh, it's interesting to me that it's beginning with this very sort of um, bourgeois image of these young boys in school. This would have been a provincial school again, and this is a... Um, not a super serious place because we see that in fact most of the boys in the study hall are sleeping um, but you have this sense right away of a collective and there is a sense that that um, Madame Bovary in some ways is is unique and is not in fact um, the same she has much more passion and she has much more drive and um, a little more uh, materialistic greed than some of her uh, cohort and yet this book it really is very much about it's about the entire town it's about the entire community it's about an entire social class, this, this petit bourgeois, bourgeoisie. Um, so right from the start, we have this idea of this collective. And then I love that they're in study hall. It's, it, they're not in arithmetic classes. They're not in religion. They're not in, um, you know, they're not studying French literature. They're in study hall. So we're looking right straight into the school. And yet what's happening in the school is not anything. Nothing is happening. Um, nothing is being taught. These are boys who are, a lot of them are sleeping, maybe some of them are doing something, um, but we do not get the sense that there is a lot of rigor, which is important because Charles Bovary 
is he is a doctor, but he's actually not even a doctor. And a lot is made of this uh, in a book I'm going to mention later called uh, Charles Bovary Country Doctor, because he is a he's someone who he's more like a physician's assistant, I think is what we would say these days. He has a certificate as a health officer, but he is not, in fact, a doctor. So there's all this kind of pretension and there's all of this kind of mystique about um, you know, social class and being a doctor and being educated. And yet uh, Charles is not going to receive great education. The first time he sits for his test, he bombs the whole thing um, and has to take it again. So, but here we are, you know, we get a sense of this from the jump because they're not in any sort of rigorous science class here. They are in, in fact, a study hall. Um, importantly, so the headmaster entered, so right away also we're talking about hierarchy. So there's a very, very clear sense we have this, we have this headmaster who's in charge of the whole thing. It's, it's very patriarchal, it's very male, um, and, and this headmaster is coming in. So you have like this kind of layer of pretension and this layer of, um, of hierarchy that sits on top of the fact that nothing is happening really in the classroom. He's followed by a new boy. And interestingly, so the italics, some translators have the italics and some French versions have the italics and some do not. So the italics were Flaubert's, you know, that should be understood here because it's not telling us otherwise. They were his in the sense that he was underlining this as he was writing with his quill pen. Apparently he did not like steel nibs. He wrote with an actual, you know, feather and it was very tortured. And he wrote like 4,500 pages in order to get um, the several hundred that we have here. He was a huge, you know, writer and then rewriter and scribbler and all of that. Um, but this idea of this new boy is important because lots of times when you have the italics, there's a um, there's a certain irony and a certain sort of um, teasing that's kind of inherent there. Uh, and, and it's an important note because you're meant to see this nouveau, this new boy, um, as as being, there's already sort of fun being made of him. There's like, it's a little bit of a jest here. So he is wearing regular clothes. He's always an outsider. Poor Dr. Bovary, poor Charles is always, he's always kind of, he's always on the outside and he's, he's never quite sure what's going on around him. Um, and then at last, the last part of it here, of course, you have all the boys who are sleeping. Everyone rose as though taken by surprise while at work. So this idea of it's as if they were taken by surprise at work. And yet, in fact, I think the idea here is that they were not, in fact, working very hard. Um, OK, so and very quickly, I want to just look at the structure of this very first part and then um, we will close today's uh, section. So right, you know, not sort of one page later, we have this chunk here that says, Thanks, no doubt, to this willingness he displayed, he did not have to go down into the lower class. For while he knew his rules passably well, he had almost no elegance in his constructions. It was the curé of his village who had started him on Latin, his parents, for reasons of economy, having delayed as long as possible sending him to school. His father, Monsieur Charles Denis Bartholomé Bovary, a former assistant army surgeon, compromised in about 1812 in some business involving conscription and forced at about that time to leave the service, had then profited from his personal attributes to pick up a dowry of 60,000 francs presented in the form of a hosier's daughter. So there is so much work. So in the beginning of this, you know, one page ago, we have Charles who is having his, you know, he's being introduced as a student walking into a school 
And yet, um, literally, you know, a page and a half later, we have his full family history. His father, who it, there's a little sort of ignominy here. We have this little, um, you know, this idea that he was a an army surgeon, and yet, um, you know, something terrible happened. Um, he was compromised uh, in 1812. I think that's where I got the year 1812 um, in some business involving conscription. So one thing that's so right away we're getting this whole story, this whole background of Charles Bovary, and it's not a very honorable story that we are getting. We also find out that his parents really need to be economical. And what is introduced right here on the third page of the novel is this idea of um, of the bourgeois marriage as being very, um, it, it, it's a transaction, it's very transactional and it's very sort of commerce based. Like he needed the money so he secured a wife who had a dowry. Uh, and the importance of that is that Emma Bovary, who grew up in a convent and read nothing but all of these um, romance novels, really wanted a, a, a love marriage and she wanted, she's a woman who has tons and tons of passion. And yet we know from the start that the marriages, not just this one, but the next one we're gonna take a look at, um, they, they all have to do with money. They are all economic arrangements. In 18, you know, the middle of the 19th century, marriage was in fact very much, uh, uh, you know, an economic proposition. Um, okay, so we're gonna move on and very quickly, let's see, on page 10, so this is, you know, four or five pages later, we have um, a very quick sort of review of what happens with Charles. So um, we didn't spend a whole lot of time looking at a big long first paragraph. I'm, what we're looking at here is how quickly in this very first 10 pages, we cover so much territory. I think a lot of readers forget that we first see Charles in that classroom because we think of the book as about being um, about Madame Bovary. So um, one of the things too to recognize is that the title of the book is Madame Bovary. Everyone in their mind thinks it is referring to Emma Bovary, but there are actually three Madame Bovaries. We of course have the very first Madame Bovary, um, who is his mother, and then we have the second Madame Bovary, who is his wife, and then we have the third Madame Bovary, who is his second wife. So um, we are going to continue in the second part. We're going to talk a little bit more about these wives and about these uh, powerful women. In the second part, we're also going to talk um, about realism and the uh, free and direct style. And of course, in the, in the midst of all of that discussion, we will be talking about uh, Flaubert's exceptional prose and, and why this novel um, is in fact worth reading. So thank you for joining me for the first session and I look forward to seeing you for the second and third. everybody, welcome back to part two of our discussion of Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. So today uh, in the second portion of this lecture, we're going to be talking about realism and free indirect style, which uh, both sound really boring, but in fact will not be boring. If in the background you are hearing just a, just a very pleasant, um, you know, soothing snoring sound, that is at least two of the four dogs that are in my office with me here today. And if you hear the sound of rain drumming on the roof, that is in fact the sound of rain drumming on the roof, which I really love because it's giving me a very um, Normandy kind of feel. It's very cloudy and stormy today in California, which seems absolutely perfect for a discussion of um, 
a book that is set in the north of France where it is often, in fact, chilly and a little blustery and gray and rainy. Okay, we're gonna dive in today uh, and take a look at realism. So realism is one of these uh, literary schools, and again, Flaubert was not wild about being um, put into this category. And he's not the only French guy. I mean, there was also Balzac, there's Stendhal, there are a bunch of people who came slightly before him. But really, Madame Bovary is known as being um, sort of a masterpiece of French realism. So you wanna look at these things in context. Uh, and in the 1700s, we have, of course, the Age of Reason, we have the Enlightenment, we have this real investment of, um, of you know, cultural capital in the idea of science and, and things being reasonable and things being, uh, you know, quantifiable. And so you have that in, you know, you have um, a body of literature that's a lot of essays and a lot of things that are very based in the scientific and not a lot of, um, you know, expansive novel type things. In reaction, because all of these literary schools, not all of them, but often they will be in reaction to the one right before, uh, in reaction to the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, we have this surgence, surgence, surge, we have a surge of romanticism. So at the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s, you have this romanticism. You think of the romantic poets uh, in England, you think of um, it, the sublime and you think of nature and there's a huge preoccupation with death and romantic love, but also the fleeting nature of time and um, you know the desperation in the human uh, condition. So you have this, this romantic literature, which is very sort of overblown in lots of ways. And there's a lot of hearkening back to the classics and a, um, you know, a, a sort of a passionate um, description of things that tends to feel a bit high flown. And in fact, often is in the shape of an ode or an epic. So there's even a, um, a, a, like a, a sort of convoluted package that this romanticism is coming in. So in reaction to romanticism, you have this um, school of literature called realism. And it is exactly what his what its name says. It's, it's trying to get at something that is real. It's trying to get at the real world, not a scientific world, but the real world as it is perceived by, you know, normal everyday men and women. You think about this from the 1840s on. Um, again, those were sort of, you know, you have Stendhal and Balzac. Uh, and again, Madame Bovary is in 1857. So it's a bit, bit later um, that, than some of the realism that came before it. But it is also, again, often thought of as the masterpiece of, um, of realist literature. After realist literature, we have something called naturalist real or, or, or um, naturalism. So you have like Emile Zola, which is where you're pushing realism a little further into like even um, sort of grittier detail. And uh, it, it takes on a little bit more of a political uh, flavor. So with realism, again, there's this idea that you're getting to something real. So there's this idea of truth. I always bridle a bit at the idea of any literary truth because truths are so slippery um, in any, any form. Um, but when the way that Flaubert is mostly getting to this quote unquote truth is through the, the idea of sort of mundane, banal kind of everyday details about mundane, banal, everyday people. So in lots of ways, the realist literary movement was very democratizing. So we're talking suddenly about bakers and um, hosiers and, uh, you know, um, small country doctors. We're not talking only here about 
um, you know, the, the courtiers and, and the royalty and the huge thinkers and the essayists were talking about, um, you, you know, sort of every, every man and every woman turns out to be a lot more about, um, or written by every man and less by every woman. But there was a democratizing sort of um, everyday uh, person who was brought to the fore. So, and, and in fact, it becomes, especially with uh, Madame Bovary, it becomes very much about the middle class. So not only is it democratizing, but it, there's a class thing where you have this elevation of the bourgeoisie, the middle class. And not only are we looking at the life of a baker, but you're looking at, at the details of that life. So you're looking at what someone's eating, um, the fabrics that they're wearing, uh, how much they're sweating. There's a lot of involvement of the body. So instead of just talking about someone in metaphors the way you might have in in romantic literature, suddenly now things are getting very um, things are getting real in realism. So you also um, one of the things that Flaubert is most famous for is this almost sort of clinical approach to what he's doing. In that his selection of details are presented sort of objectively. So he's presenting these details to us. There's this enormous accumulation of detail, uh, but the, and the author is kind of omnipresent in the sense that the author is, is, um, is always there and they are the ones who are choosing and they are, it's very sort of telling. It's third person, this is someone, um, this omniscient, but also very invisible author is providing these details for us without any kind of commentary. And it's this very um, sort of godlike hand that the author has, which is interesting because it is um, omnipotent. It's able, this, this narrative style is able to kind of move in and out of all of the different characters, uh, consciousnesses, um, if that's the word, uh, and, and is, um, again, is very sort of present in some ways, but also invisible. This is not someone who is moralizing. This is not someone who is giving commentary. Uh, people are allowed to speak for themselves in these, um, in these circumstances. Characters have their own, uh, their own dialects, their own tones. There's a lot of quoting that's happening. So all of this accumulation of detail uh, in, in this very sort of clinical, uh, you know, way where it's not commented upon, simply uh, shown to the reader is kind of, those, those are sort of the hallmarks of realism. Okay, so as always, uh, Lydia Davis has some very smart things to say, and in this case, it is about realism. So we're going to look very uh, briefly here uh, in, the, uh, in the introduction on page 15. So... This is a little uh, exercise for some of you in Roman numerals. You've got those tiny little Roman numerals here. So this is what uh, Lydia Davis, who's such a genius, has to say. In place of the author's comments then, the details of the scenes and the cute physical portraits must convey everything. And for Flaubert, direct dialogue too, function to portray the characters more than to move the plot forward. Detailed description would bring the reader into the presence of the material. To be effective, the details must be closely observed, carefully chosen, precise, and vivid. So those of you um, who have listened to or attended the, um, the lecture on Cassandra at the wedding, that is a, a novel written in 1962 by a woman um, who grew up in California about a setting in California. And yet that is an example of a work where the details are absolutely just incredibly, incredibly well 
chosen. It's it's one of those um, books very much like Madame Bovary. And honestly, this is like the only thing that these two books share. There really is this sense of, of, of details as speaking volumes and doing lots of hard work. Okay, so we're now going to take a look at, uh, as promised, we're going to take a look at some of the women in the very beginning of the book. Uh, so we're going to turn to page 10. So on page 10, um, in part one, we left off with the, the three Madame Bovarys. So there's Madame Bovary, who is Charles's mother. There is Madame Bovary, who is Charles's first wife. And then we have Emma Bovary, who uh, is certainly the, the, the one who is, um, it, you know, she's, she's sort of the biggest presence in the novel. But if we look on page uh, 10, here we're looking at these bottom blocks of text. So again, what we're looking at here are these details. So take a, take a listen, take a listen to these details. Charles therefore set to work again. So this is after he has failed his, his uh, exams. Charles therefore set to work again and prepared unremittingly the subjects for his examination, for which he learned all the questions by heart in advance. He passed with a fairly good grade. What a great day for his mother, they put on a grand dinner. And then a little bit lower down, but it was not enough to have raised her son, seen to it that he got his medical training and discovered toast for his practice. He needed a wife. She found him one, a bailiff's widow from Dieppe, who was 45 years old with an income of 1,200 livres. Although she was ugly, thin as a lathe, as thick with pimples as the spring is with buds, Madame Dubuc certainly had no lack of suitors to choose from. To achieve her ends, Mère Bovary was obliged to supplant them all, and she very carefully, caref sorry, she very skillfully foiled even the intrigues of a pork butcher favored by the clergy. Okay, so we're going to take a quick look here. So um, we have some details that we're going to look at in a minute about Charles's preparation. But uh, what we have here is this idea um, of, of exactly how he went about the preparation. He's, he, um, he learned all of the questions by heart in advance, which is an interesting way. I mean, this is something that he is learning by rote. And in some ways, there's this real criticism being leveled by Flaubert. This is not... Um, you know, the age of reason where he's doing lots and lots of thinking. This is not Montaigne or Voltaire doing some kind of, you know, amazing essayistic rhetoric stuff. This is simply someone memorizing what he needs to know. And he passed with a fairly good grade. We don't have an exact uh, detail there. Maybe, um, in fact, maybe in the French it even is. Maybe I'll take a look at that. Uh, but but you have this idea of, of him passing with this kind of mediocre thing. And again, this is the second time he's passed. What a great day for his mother. So when we are looking at the details surrounding these two women, um, in, in this case, in the beginning, we're just thinking about the first two Madame Bovarys, they, they have this real power. So there is this sense here, what a great day for his mother, which is so funny because it really ought to be a great day for Charles. And yet the emphasis here is on his mother. Um, and then uh, they put on a grand dinner. So again, this is how they're celebrating, but the way that they're celebrating is, is this very sort of bourgeois, when they say a grand dinner, you can imagine, uh, given everything that we have learned about these people until this point, that in fact a grand dinner, this is not some, uh, you know, Downton Abbey moment. This is very much like a, um, a, a more provincial moment. 
Uh, and then down a little bit more, we really get into some more details here. We have this idea of having discovered Tost for his practice. Again, this is a very provincial setting. It's like, um, I don't I don't know what the equivalent would be near you, but something, it's it's not like New York City. Um, this is, this is a, you know, a small town that she's very proud to have gotten him situated in. Um, and the fact that the wife is a bailiff's widow from Dieppe, it's not a judge, it's not a, a solicitor or an attorney, it is in fact the bailiff, um, and it's the bailiff's widow. She was 45 years old and an income of 1,200 livres. So again, there is this idea of, um, of marriage as being this entirely economic proposition. Then we have this incredible description, although she was ugly, thin as a lathe, as thick with pimples as the spring is with buds, Madame Dubuc certainly had no lack of suitors to choose from. So Flaubert is doing this incredible thing here where he, he's, he's fairly sparing with his metaphors, but we have this metaphor that's so amazing because um, she's as thick with pimples as the spring is with buds. So this is a woman who's 45 years old and, uh, you know, talk about an economic proposition. This is strictly a, a money thing that's happening because presumably not a lot of babies are going to be born to a 45 year old woman in 1857 um, or in the, you know, a little earlier than that when, when Flaubert was writing this, this story. Um, but again, to then have her pimples as being um, like the pimples alone are a really striking detail because again, this is an older woman. She's still, you know, um, fighting acne. She's got some serious adult acne happening. And then to have it, um, to choose the detail, the metaphor be the, the buds in spring, there's this very sort of cliche romantic thing um, and so here we have Flaubert, the realist, who's pushing against romanticism. Um, you, you know, the, 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 the spring buds as, as sort of this incredibly um, cliche, romantic uh, uh, metaphor here is being turned on its head because what we are talking about are pimples. So you have this choice of detail that is, that is very realist in that it's doing a lot of work. It's telling us a lot about um, Madame Dubuc, the widow of the bailiff, but it also is um, is pushing against this romantic thing, uh, and then too when she uh, you know she's fighting against all of these suitors. So we again have this real strength in the form of Mère Bovary of Charles's mother, uh, and and yet she skillfully foiled even the intrigues of a pork butcher favored by the clergy. So this is one of those details, um, and when we discuss irony uh, in the third part, you're going to get an even stronger sense of this kind of irony where Flaubert chooses something that's kind of, he's building things up, and then he hits us with this very, very mundane, um, not to say kind of grotesque or absurd detail. So the, someone who would have been supported by the clergy, you would expect to have been someone, um, you know, in a slightly higher standing than a pork butcher. And there's something too about the pork butcher, that detail there, it's not just any butcher and it's not just a tradesman, it's a pork butcher. So there's this real sense of, of, of giving us very concrete details uh, that speak volumes about what we, about, about our, um, it, it, you know, the social milieu and the importance of, of this actual world that we are entering so completely because in fact we have all of these um, all of these details and importantly you know Flaubert is not saying like 
some lame pork butcher and he's not saying like the downtrodden pork butcher this is not charles dickens where we have lots of commentary about you know ailing so and so or um you know poor old so and so it's given to us it's simply a pork butcher who was supported by the clergy and it's simply um an ugly woman who is very thin who has pimples uh, so, it, so it's not, one of the important things here to realize is there isn't commentary and we don't have a lot of qualifiers. We don't have a lot of um, the author and the narrator sort of coloring these images. They are simply giving us the details. Okay, um, and I also wanted to look at page 17 briefly. Another example here. Um, okay. So this is when uh, when they find out, in fact, that Madame Dubuc is um, the you know she's the the widow of the bailiff from Dieppe. She not she is not in fact who she says she is. So they think that she has you know that that income. She has some money. Turns out she was lying. So a couple of details that are very important here on page seventeen. One is that. Um, so uh, we find out that Madame Dubuc's first name is Heloise, and Heloise, Heloise um, is a very important 12th century nun who had this incredibly passionate love affair with this, um, I, I believe he was a priest, his name was Abelard. So Abelard and Heloise, it's kind of like a Romeo and Juliet thing um, in French literature. But, but it's even, it's medieval, so it's, it's, you know, 500 years before we have the publication of Macbeth, or the, the, the production of Macbeth. But, but it's, so, so in the 1100s, we have this nun and this, um, this her, her lover, and it's this huge scandalous thing, but it's, it's about the power of love, and they end up having this, this sort of physical romance, and it ends up being kind of this, this very passionate thing between these members of the clergy, which it clearly, I mean, you know, not a lot more, uh, not, a, not a bigger statement on uh, passion than the idea of two uh, people who have renounced their physical lives. I mean, that's really, that's really some kind of fashion. I mean, passion. But what we find out here, and this is, of course, the irony, is that Eloise Dubuc, the, the um, widow of this bailiff from Dieppe, is, this is her namesake. Her namesake is this passionate, and this, the the um, Eloise was also very erudite. She was very important in her community. This Eloise here is old. She's pimply. She has no money. This is not someone who is, um, you know, going to be held up as sort of our our modern day realism Juliet figure. So that is a detail that again, there's no commentary about it. There's not any um, any sort of qualifiers. It's simply that is what her name is, and yet that one small detail is is speaking volumes about who this woman is. Um, I love the the specificity here too of this. Um, it's kind of close to the bottom here. So this is uh, Monsieur Bovary. This is Charles' dad freaking out. In his anger, the elder Monsieur Bovary. Breaking a chair on the flagstones, accused his wife of having brought calamity down upon their son by hitching him to an old nag whose harness wasn't worth her skin. They came to toasts. They had it out. There were scenes. Eloise, in tears, throwing herself into her husband's arms, begged him to defend her from his parents. Charles tried to speak up for her, 
His parents became furious and they left. I love the, the level of detail here because we see, again, the power of, uh, of Charles's mother having brokered this, this marriage that in fact turns out to be a bust. And again, um, uh, Flaubert was really sort of um, outspoken about how he didn't use a lot of metaphors because he was simply going to promote or provide us these details. And yet he does, when he uses the metaphors, they are just excellent. Like this one, um, hitching, uh, brought down calamity upon their son by hitching him to an old nag whose harness wasn't worth her skin. So again, you can't get more sort of bourgeois and more sort of, um, you know, like lower middle class here, petit bourgeois, um, with this idea of um, this old nag. I also love the fact here that uh, Charles's father is having this big outburst, but in fact is totally ineffectual. And Charles is trying to speak up, and yet his parents just sort of continue their freaking out and they leave. So you always, I mean, at every turn, poor Charles is just not getting it done. The guy is just so mediocre in so many ways. And even as he's trying to defend, um, you know, his his wife, who is in fact a fraud, he's working very hard to do that. And yet he is not in fact successful. Okay. So when, so that that's sort of our, our discussion of realism. And we're going to move on to another, um, another very distinctive feature of Flaubert. The, the, um, the realism lends itself very well to this, which is something called the free indirect style. So basically, this is this very cool narrative technique where we have this omniscient godlike narrator who is able to enter into the consciousnesses, if that's a word, of, of all of the characters. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's someone who's able to tell us exactly what all of these people are thinking in very quick succession. And um, lots of times it follows the realist uh, credo in the sense that their, their thoughts and feelings are being simply reported and oftentimes in their own language in a way that's very effective without a lot of, um, you know, a lot of commentary on the part of the uh, narrator. So, Again, we're going to take a listen to what our incredibly brilliant uh, Lydia Davis has to say about the free and direct discourse. We so are... here on page 18, Lydia Davis says, Flaubert, entering fully always into his character's points of view, shifts gears convincingly as he moves in and out of these other styles, no less alien to him, perhaps, than the style of the narration of the book as a whole. So again, um, in the past, some of you have heard me talk about these different registers that a novel might be written in. And, and Flaubert has a very, very good grip on all the sort of different registers, all these different dictions and all of the different sort of dialects. Uh, and in order to show us this very, very complete world, then obviously their own voices and their own um, descriptions of things are an important facet of that. So in order to look at that, we're gonna go to page 168. And this is interesting because, again, even um, you know, well into the novel, um, Mère Bovary, Charles's mother, is still really a pretty, pretty serious uh, influence and a, and a pretty strong presence. She's not, you know, a main player at this point, and yet she still does <laughs> make her make herself felt. So on page one sixty-eight, here we're going to start at the top. So what we're going to look quickly at here is the way that that our narrator is entering into the different, um, you know, the, the consciousness of each of these people. First, we have him um, in Rodolphe's mind, 
um, Rodolphe being one of Emma's lovers. Then we're going to move into Emma's mind and then Madame Bovary's and then, um, meaning Emma Bovary's, and then, um, sorry, Emma and then Madame Bovary mère. And then um, we're going to look at the way that Flaubert can kind of toggle back and forth between these two women. So Rodolphe is thinking up at the top here. He made her into something compliant and corrupt. Hers was a sort of idiotic attachment full of admiration for him, of sensual pleasure for her, a bliss that numbed her, and her soul sank into this intoxication and drowned in it. So you have this idea, um, and, and so when, um, for example, when Rodolphe is saying a sort of idiotic attachment, um, that idiotic attachment is very much how Rodolphe himself would be thinking about her. Um, sorry, um, full of admiration for him, of sensual pleasure for her, a bliss that numbed her, and her soul sank into this intoxication. So these are all, this is all what, what Rodolphe is thinking. Emma herself would not think about herself in those terms. Uh, and, and yet this is exactly the way that Rodolphe is, is we're inside his brain getting his um, description of how Emma feels about him. And then a little further down here, we have Emma herself thinking, at last, those, so this is when she's getting out of the carriage of his after having, she's gotten very brazen here and she's gone off for a walk with him. She comes back and she is stepping out of her hirondelle, um, out, um, out of the carriage. At last, those who had still doubted no longer did so when they saw her step down from the hirondelle one day with her waist tightly buttoned up in a vest like a man. So we have this idea of Emma, this is exactly how Emma herself would conceive of it, that people who used to think that she was not that cool are now, there is, um, they, let's see, um, those who had still doubted her no longer did so. So you have this idea of, of this is the way that she would in fact conceive of it. Then we move on to the next one, um, Madame Bovary Sr. Madame Bovary Sr., who, after a dreadful scene with her husband, had come to take refuge in her son's home, was as scandalized as any of the townswomen. Many other things displeased her. First of all, Charles had not listened to her advice about forbidding novels. Then she did not like the way the house was run. So again, we have this realism that's pushing against the romanticism here. Uh, Emma Bovary, like the root cause of a lot of her issues is her obsession with the romantic novel. Um, with exactly, not not necessarily the medieval one about Eloise and Abelard, but but all of the romantic ones um, that, that came at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. So um, Charles's mother is like, do not let that woman read those books in much the same way you might think, um, you know, that kids these days are being corrupted by TikTok or whatever the thing is. So, um, and Charles is not, of course, strong enough or decisive enough to tell Emma that she cannot read her books. Um, so, and we also have this idea of, of Emma as failing to keep the house the way it should be kept, all of that sort of thing. So when you have Emma alighting from the carriage and you have this sense of her um, feeling so satisfied because people are now going to have to recognize her as the kind of, um, you know, she has arrived socially. And then we immediately in the same paragraph, we are in um, Charles's mother's head. So it's not even a new paragraph. And we know that, um, that she's had this disastrous uh, conflict with her husband. 
and and again that um this this uh, dreadful scene with her husband that kind of um language and and the description of that interaction is very much the way that she um madame bovary the elder would be thinking about that um okay so uh yes okay great so um when we are talking about realism and free and direct style these are some of the real hallmarks of what make Flaubert's uh masterpiece such an important piece of literature because before this again with these um the novels or the essays and whatnot of the enlightenment and then the the poetry and the novels from the romantic period this is an entirely different delving into a world that is very kind of lower middle class and it's people who are working people and it's not a doctor in fact he's like a country physician's assistant um who who is marrying these women who are you know the 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 widows of bailiffs and the farmer's daughter who's been brought up in the nunnery reading romance novels so you have this sense of this real world quote unquote real world uh and and, and this idea that flaubert is really trying to get us to some sort of truth uh and and when you think about you know um the french revolution is not having been that far beforehand i mean it's within what is it 1786 oh my god that's so embarrassing is that right um maybe so you know regardless it's end of the 18th century you know it's only sort of what 65 years later 70 years later that we are talking about um uh, something that is very revolutionary because in fact it is this this delving and this this uh exploration of the middle class so um i hope that that makes you uh uh, have a good sense of why this book is important to read. Not only is it just sort of delightful to immerse ourselves in this world, but in fact, it's a very radical political thing that Flaubert is doing. So please join us for part three. Time flies, you guys. I just am never, never fully satisfied with what I get to fit into these half hour sessions. But in the third session, we're going to talk about irony and pathos, which are very important. Um, the irony in the novel, again, I love dark, um, you know, dark humor, whether it's in television or literature. And in, in lots of ways, I think the irony of Flaubert, sometimes because we don't understand the cultural reference, but, but sometimes just because of the way it's been translated or um, the way that we approach a classic, I think sometimes we don't appreciate that. So tune in to the third session to learn about um, the irony in Flaubert and also the pathos, the kind of the sympathy that Flaubert is always trying to evoke in his readers. So thank you very much for having joined uh, the second session and I hope to see you for the third. Hi everybody, welcome to part three of our discussion of uh, Lydia Davis's amazing translation of Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Today, uh, we're gonna finish up by talking about irony and uh, how that irony, there's a lot of irony in uh, Flaubert, but also how that irony is always intertwined with lots of pathos. So we're gonna discuss those, uh, those aspects of the novel. Then we're gonna talk a little bit about plot I don't ever spend really very much time on plot, partially because plot doesn't interest me very much. Occasionally I'll look at plot 
uh, if it's really interesting structurally or if there's something kind of unusual about it. But plot in general is not, not something that I pay a lot of attention to. It's also something that you can very easily access on Wikipedia. So no need for me to tell you what happens in the story. Uh, and then finally, we're going to look at the close of the novel. Okay. We're gonna dive right in. As always, um, when we are looking at Madame Bovary and this uh, this translation in particular, we're gonna take a look at what Lydia Davis has to say. So if we go to, let's see, page six of the introduction, um, as always, it's a little bit of a uh, Roman numeral, a, a baby Roman numeral test for people. Um, on page six here, she says this, if objective description was Flaubert's literary method, that objectivity was always imbued with irony. To see and judge a thing with a cool eye was to judge it with the irony that had been part of his nature since he was a child. So there's a, um, I like the idea of, of describing something in a, in a cool tone. There is this sense that um, th there's a little bit of mockery that comes with the distance and with the coolness. And also, of course, with the selection of details, which we talked about in part two of this discussion. Okay, and then she has this excellent, very quick analysis of where we see some of that irony. It is present in his choice of names. The old rattle trap of a coach called Swallow the hirondelle, uh, the many character names, such as Bovary itself, that are variations on the French for ox, the evil money lender, le rue, who is also known as the happy one. So there are lots of them, like Tuvache, who is the mayor. Um, like if you say that in French, it's like all cow, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of a thing. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of ironic names. I mean, we could talk for 90 minutes about names alone, but there's also irony in other uh, bits and pieces. Uh, okay, so, and then in fact, we're gonna read one more chunk of the um, Lydia Davis down here about the irony. Flaubert's irony is present in the eloquent juxtapositions he creates between the poetic and the brutally commonplace with an effect that is sometimes humorous, sometimes shocking, but that always draws us up short, breaks the mood. An exquisite passage, often a description of nature, will be undercut, as though here Flaubert is also undercutting his own lyrical impulse by what immediately follows, a banal, mundane comparison or action. Okay, so we are going to look exactly at that. So let's turn to page 227. So this is when um, Emma... Let's see, I'm getting us to 227 here. Um, so Emma has somehow, not somehow, with her, with her passion and her, her guile and her kind of um, sneakiness, she has somehow convinced um, Charles, her husband Charles, that she is the one who needs to go into town and have this interaction with um, Léon. Uh, so if we look on page 20, 227 here, she basically has what amounts to sort of like a three-day honeymoon with Leon um, in, in town while she's supposedly running this important errand for her husband. So I want you to pay attention as I'm reading to the way that there is sort of this buildup of all of these um, beautiful romantic um, notions and then how they are undercut. They were three full, exquisite, splendid days, a real honeymoon, I mean, three full, exquisite, splendid days. Exquisite and splendid, I think, are a bit over the top. So you have this, this kind of buildup of the romantic. 
They stayed at the Hotel de Bologna on the harbor, and there they lived with the shutters closed and the doors locked, flowers on the floor and fruit drinks on ice, which were brought up to them from the morning on. Toward evening, they would hire a covered boat and go have dinner on an island. So all of that does sound very idyllic. Um, I have a feeling that the flowers on the floor, I'm imagining a big bouquet maybe sitting in front of a fireplace or something. Um, I imagine that and the fruit drinks on ice. I, I don't know those references, but I would imagine those are things that are that are fairly provincial, not that sophisticated. Um, but, you know, going on a covered boat out to an island for a, a romantic dinner, of course, does sound very romantic. It was the hour when, from along the docksides, one can hear the echo of the caulker's mallets striking the hulls of the ship. Smoke from the tar would rise from between the trees, and on the river, one saw broad patches of oil undulating unevenly beneath the crimson glow of the sun like floating sheets of Florentine bronze. So I love this so much when you have these, um, the caulker's mallets. So you have, you're expecting more of this kind of idyllic, bucolic, beautiful, romantic thing. Um, it was the hour when one can hear the echo of the caulker's mallets striking the hulls of the ships. Um, the, the, a caulker's mallet is, um, you know, they're, they're applying caulk to the hull of these ships. It, there's a nice kind of onomatopoeia here with the caulker's mallet, uh, but it's, it's, it's sort of this, um, the idea is that it would be this romantic thing, and yet it's um, obviously something that is very kind of working class. And then smoke from the tar would rise. I mean, if you've ever been behind someone who is doing the tar for asphalt, um, you know that that is not a great scent. So, you know, you have this romantic moment, and yet, as just as Lydia Davis is suggesting, it is undercut by the scent of this, um, the scent of the tar. And on the river, one saw broad patches of oil undulating unevenly. What I love about that is undulating unevenly has this really beautiful, again, it's almost like an onomatopoeia here. It's this beautiful mimetic thing where we can kind of see the undulations um, of the water, the undulating unevenly. There's a, um, you know, a, a nice way that the, the, the language here is echoing what we are supposed to be envisioning. And yet what we are envisioning is oil slicked onto water, which is, you know, a beautiful mix of, of this kind of gross industrial um, waste that is happening uh, th that's also sort of transformed into this beautiful thing. And you could argue that, yes, this is a beautiful transformation, uh, but I think with things like the Kulker's mallet and the scent of the tar, we are supposed to understand that, that he's doing exactly this ironic thing where you're building, you know, this, this kind of... Um, this uh, very romantic scene of this honeymoon, and yet it's totally undercutting uh, with some of the, the more kind of, uh, you know, industrial details. Also, when I keep mentioning the word romantic, I have to remind myself, and you potentially, that this also is, again, the way that realism is pushing against romanticism. This is not some like ode on a Grecian urn moment. This is very, um, very down to earth. And these details that Flaubert is choosing are really, you know, pushing against this idea of the world as being very real in the sense as, you know, not smelling great. Okay. Um, so what I like, though, is that irony, you know, you can have satire, for example, um, which is irony that has sort of a biting or a, a, like an overly moralistic tone. But what we have here with this irony is a totally different animal. What we have here is um, irony that is really well mixed with pathos. 
So pathos is simply a Greek, a Greek, a Greek word um, for any kind of sentiment that is meant to evoke pity or or sorrow or sympathy for someone. And there is a lot of sympathy that is um, that is generated, not just for Charles, but certainly, you know, for the poor young working guy who has his leg reconstructed and for um, all of the different people who are, are really struggling in lots of ways in this book. Um, OK, but so we're going to take a quick look back to our trusty Lydia Davis introduction on um, what is that page 14 in the introduction and uh, right up here at the top of the page. Davis says, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, I had a little pause there because I was feeling like that is not the right thing, but it is. Um, so he, so this is Flaubert talking. This will be the first time, I think, that one will see a book that makes fun of its young leading lady and its young leading man. So that was Flaubert writing in, um, quoted by Davis, but writing in a letter to um, Boilet, who is the person to whom he is dedicating this book. He goes on though, Flaubert does, to say that irony takes nothing away from pathos. So he is very clearly stating that both irony and pathos are, are, are present. And then um, Nabokov, who was a, um, uh, fascinated with Madame Bovary and has an entire essay on it that is collected in his, um, his notes on the novel, uh, Nabokov himself in his lecture on Madame Bovary says, the ironic and the pathetic are beautifully intertwined. So there is this nice idea. This is not just um, snarky meanness. This is uh, irony that is meant to evoke sympathy, which I think is a really interesting combination. So we're going to look at 226. We're sort of back to where we were a second ago um, to look at the, the scene right before we have the honeymooners um, on their oil slicked uh, tar smelling boating outing. Um, we have the part right before. Um, so so basically, this is um, this is Emma, who is really being very sneaky and mischievous here. So she says to um, to her husband, basically knowing how he will react, she says, I don't trust him very much. Notaries have such a bad reputation. We ought to perhaps to consult. We, we know only, oh, there's no one. And then Charles says, unless Leon, replied Charles, who was thinking. So you have this, this kind of game that um, Emma Bovary is playing in which she's, she's sort of saying, oh, I wish we knew someone just like my lover. <laughs> who happens to be available to us? And Charles says, oh, wait, what about Leon, meaning your lover? Uh, but it was hard to explain matters by letters. So she offered to make the trip. He thanked her, but he would not let her. She insisted. Each tried to outdo the other with considerate attention. At last, she cried out in a tone of affected rebellion. No, you must let me. I must go. How good you are, he said, kissing her on the forehead. The very next day, she set off in the Hirondelle for Rouen to consult Monsieur Léon, and she stayed there three days. So it's so sad because you have this, I mean, the irony here is, is a dramatic irony. Um, dramatic irony is simply when a reader or um, someone who is sitting in a play um, any type of play. If you have information that one of the people uh, in the book or in the play does not have, that's known as dramatic irony. So in this case, we as a reader understand that Emma is being very conniving here 
and we understand that poor Charles is not following along here while uh, basically he's being talked into, or he is talking his wife into going off to visit her lover. So there is this sense here of this real of this real pathos that comes um, with the uh, w along with this irony. So fairly early in the book, we have quite a bit of irony that does in fact inspire sympathy for our poor Charles. Up on the top of page ten, fairly early in the novel, um, again by page ten he's already preparing for his medical exams, and we see him in the city. And he is um, suddenly aware of sensual pleasure and he is going out to the bars and he's meeting women and doing all of these things um, that, that his repressed self would not, um, would not have allowed before. So we're up at the top here. Many things that had been repressed in him opened up. He learned songs by heart and sang them to his lady friends. He developed an enthusiasm for Beranger, knew how to make punch and at last experienced love. So Béranger is a like a cheesy kind of a writer. It's like if you had developed a real enthusiasm for like Daniel Steele or something. Um, but but again, this is kind of the irony. This is that cool detachment and the very carefully selected detail that Flaubert uh, is using to build the irony here. And then um, after we have him finally experiencing love and memorizing songs and singing them to his lady friends, Owing to this preparatory work, he completely failed his public health officer's examination. It's so funny. So there's this irony here where we have this kind of high-flown, beautiful prose about, you know, all of these adventures he's having and how he's really tapping into this sensual life. And then we have it deflated, exactly the way that Lydia Davis suggests we do, um, by this idea of he completely failed his public health officer's examination. So I love this sentence, owing to this preparatory work. So instead of doing, it's much like starting the book with study hall and having him not be doing anything there. Um, he's The preparatory work he's undertaking is like visiting bars and drinking a lot and singing. Um, and But now he is, um, you know, so owing to that preparation, he completely failed his exams. Um, they were waiting for him at home that very evening to celebrate his success. So that's the final part of that first paragraph. And again, you have this exclamation mark at the end and you have this idea that everybody was so excited to celebrate his success and yet here he had failed his exams. Okay, so we have this idea of irony um, and, and I think it's important to take a look in those cases, both at um, the fact that those have to do with Charles because Charles really is, um, you know, he's, he's a buffoon in every way, right from the start all the way through till the end, but he is someone for whom we have a lot of sympathy. It's why um, I mentioned that book before, Charles Bovary, Country Doctor, which is such a great book um, by Jean Amery, although it was written in German first. Um, don't let the name fool you. Uh, I, but I loved this notion of like really building out why it is uh, that, that, that we think of Charles Bovary as being such a buffoon when, um, when in fact he was sort of set up to fail largely because of this irony. So it, it saves it though. It saves the novel in many ways. If um, we didn't have sympathy for him, I think that it would just be, uh, there would be too many villains. There'd be too many villains in this, in this long novel. Uh, okay, so we're gonna talk briefly about plot um, and then we're gonna take a look at the end of the novel. So 
We talked about the fact that the book is called Madame Bovary, and we've talked a lot in the past. We've talked about the fact that there are three, in fact, and most people forget that and, and, and focus only on Emma Bovary, who is Charles's second wife. But I think that um, people uh, assume that the book is, is all about Emma, and I think that we are meant to focus our attention on her because of the fact that she is the titular title here. She is the person who is carrying the title of the book. But I am also um, interested in the fact that her trajectory is a tragedy. I mean, this is not a book, you know, the sort of formal definition of a tragedy is that it ends with death and a comedy ends with a wedding. So we definitely are not happily married at the end of this. We are not hopeful. Uh, nobody's pregnant. It's, it's, not, um, it, it, it's not looking good for the family as a whole. So it, what we find out during the course of the book is that um, Emma is not a great mother at one point, or not at one point, she does have a child. Um, the child's name is Bert, um, which you would say Bertha, I think. I listen to a podcast, I try to listen to all of the podcasts I can um, in preparation just to make sure I'm not repeating things. And somebody kept calling her Berth, the daughter named Berth. Um, so probably Bertha would be um, a, a, like a more satisfactory way to describe the daughter. but. Emma is not a great mom. Occasionally she likes to dress up her daughter and sort of play at being a mother, but she's far too busy following her passion um, to, to really devote herself. Not to mention that, you know, the daughter is often sent off to wet nurses and is is not um, really part of the, um, not part of the family in any meaningful way. Of course, Emma herself was raised in a convent when her mother died. So, um, you know, you have this kind of precedent set for sending away the daughter who can't be helpful on the farm. So we have this real focus on Emma, but what I find interesting is that the book does begin and end very firmly with, um, with our trusty Charles. So in the beginning, we have him as the new boy who is just showing up uh, at the new school and it's painful and, and awkward and he's kind of a loser and he's, I mean, sorry, apologies to you, Charles. Um, but but right from the start, he's kind of the butt of jokes and, and, and he's not someone who is going to be a bright light. And, you know, that sort of com continues apace throughout the entire novel. But we also have the close of the novel, uh, which is fixing on him as well. So we're going to look here at page 310 down at the bottom. Uh, at seven o'clock, little Bert, that sounds so weird. It's It's not a great name, is it? Um, at seven o'clock, little Bertha, still not, not great, um, little Bertha, who had not seen him all afternoon, came to call him for dinner. His head was leaning back against the wall, his eyes were closed, his mouth was open, and he was holding in his hands a long lock of black hair. Okay, one interesting thing to note here, it's not clear how he dies. He dies of some sort of undescribed illness. Um, assuming you know, he is a medical, he has some medical training. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if we are meant to think he has died of a broken heart. I'm not sure if we are meant to just accept this as kind of a, um, uh, like a, almost like another strike of irony, uh, just meaning like another poking fun at the romantic novel that, that of course he would die of, of heartache at the end of this novel after Emma is gone. Um, it also, the fact that he's holding the, the long lock of black hair, 
I have to imagine that that was not uh, like not a high class savory thing to do. Um, I think it might have been fine to, I don't know, have like a woven bracelet of your love's hair or like perhaps a piece in a locket. Um, but this idea of, of a long lock of black hair, it just, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's unappealing. It is not appealing. Um, so, it, it, and, and, and the fact that he is holding it, you know, on some level there is, there's, there's a certain amount of irony because he seems like a buffoon, but it's also very sweet. Again, we have this sympathy because clearly he still loves her through to the end. Papa, come, she said. And thinking that he wanted to play, she pushed him gently. He fell to the ground. He was dead. 36 hours later, at the apothecary's request, Monsieur Canivet came. He opened him and found nothing. So again, we have this, um, th this is such an interesting nuance. So of course, Flaubert's father was a surgeon and his um, older brother was a surgeon. We also know that Charles's father was this, you know, um, uh, disgraced army surgeon. So you have this long line of people who are even in the middle of the 19th century opening up other other people. Uh, and, and, and you have a real sort of trust in medicine that, that is gone awry many different times. You know, um, Charles undergoes, well, he leads this poor, innocent, you know, young person on this terrible medical, um, you know, sort of innovation quest that really ends very badly. So we, of course, have an autopsy that's being performed here, and uh, he found nothing. So there is a sense, too, of opening him up and finding nothing, meaning that Charles is kind of this empty husk of a man. You know, there's like literally nothing in him. He has no guts, no brain, no hearts. Sorry, that was my light just fell right off the back of my computer. Um, so we have this kind of medical inquiry. And I, I think we need to look at this, too, as, as, as a sort of pushing back of realism on even the enlightenment and the age of reason and this idea that science is going to tell us everything we need to know. In fact, here it is not solving the mystery of Charles Bovary's death and it's not even solving the mystery of like what is in him and what makes him tick and who Charles Bovary might be. Okay, when everything was sold, I mean, it's so harsh. We go right straight from, from this sort of, from his death to then 36 hours later, which I love that precision there. It's very kind of medical. Um, and, and yet the autopsy is unsuccessful, nothing is found. And then we're sort of all of the process of what would happen next is totally elided and we've gone right to uh, when everything was sold. So even at the close of the novel, even at this really sort of gut-wrenching um, moment, we don't have the daughter you know, going into paroxysms of sadness and we don't have uh, an emotion like laden kind of description. What we have here is again, this kind of economic proposition. We have like a, like a mercantile thing happening, a mercenary thing happening here. When everything was sold, there remained 12 francs, 75 centimes, which was used to pay Mademoiselle Bovary's fare to her grandmother's house. So, um, again, Mère Bovary, like Charles's mother, is is the long-standing one. She is the she is the Mrs. Bovary, the Madame Bovary, who is outlasting everyone, and and so there is this very matriarchal thing, and we have young Bertha, who is going to carry on the line. But then the old woman died the same year, so you you have this kind of death after death after death. Père Rouault being paralyzed, it was an aunt who took charge of her. 
She is poor and sends her to work for, for sorry, sends her to work for her living in a cotton mill. So we've got um, a criticism here of the Industrial Revolution that was that was making its way. You know, it'll be in the United States, I think, 1901. Is that when we, wow, I don't, thank you to my ninth grade uh, American history teacher for that piece of information, if in fact it is correct. But before then, we have these cotton mills um, that would have been by the by the river in Rouen. So, but we have this this sad thing where poor Bertha is, you know, her mother commits suicide because she is not having successful affairs. Her father dies of some unknown reason. And as a young child, she's first shipped to her paternal grandmother, then to her maternal grandfather. Then she's being raised by an aunt and being made to work in a mill. So this is an interesting part though. So in the last very brief two paragraphs of the book, since Bovary's death, three doctors have followed one another in Yonville without success. So promptly and thoroughly has Monsieur Homais routed them. He himself was an infernally good clientele. The authorities treat him kindly and public opinion protects him. He has just been awarded the cross of the Legion of Honor. So this is such an interesting note. And, and again, I think it has to do with, with uh, the plot here in the sense that Emma dies, Charles dies, things are not going to go well for Bertha. The thing, uh, the people who will end up, um, you know, doing well at the end of this novel, as far as we can tell, is Lheureux, who is, you know, the happy one, who is the money lender, and who is the the, the um, peddler of all sorts of uh, material goods. And uh, uh, Monsieur Homais, who is the apothecary, who is sort of this harbinger of this harmful science, um, and sort of general quackery. So, um, the end of the book is so interesting. It starts very much, I feel, like the beginning. It's kind of this, like, we're, we're thrust into this story. We're given a bunch of um, context in a, in a classroom. And then at the end here, we're ending on the, the note of the apothecary uh, getting the Legion of Honor. So we have these kind of oblique beginnings and ends, which I really appreciate because I think... Again, this is an anti-romantic um, push by realism, and it's also a sense of this is how this is how real life is. You know, there there are classrooms, and there are bad people who are really you know um, you know uh, aggressive and egocentric and pushy, and those people are going to uh, you know succeed in the sense of uh, they are going to prosper and they are going to win awards. And the poor people like Charles are just gonna, um, you know, they're just gonna kind of blunder along with an unfaithful wife until they die on a bench and are discovered by their daughter. So um, I, of course, I'm saying that with a little irony, a little tongue of cheek with quite a bit of pathos, all intertwined, as Nabokov said. So I, I thank you very much for allowing me this deep dive into Madame Bovary. And I hope that, um, I mean, honestly, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface and we've talked for a full 90 minutes. Um, but, but I hope that this does give you some new insight as to why the book is important, why it has endured, um, why someone like Lydia Davis took the time and energy to, uh, to translate it, and why it's a book that still actually has a lot to tell us about today, a lot to tell us about, um, you know, happiness and material consumption and the, the, the holes in science and the, the idea of, um, of pride and of vanity and of infidelity. So I think um, it's, it's a fun book to read and I hope you enjoyed it and I hope that, uh, I hope that the lectures have been helpful and I hope to see you back again here sometime soon.
Thank you. I'm so glad you're here to take a look at the images that I've pulled from Madame Bovary. So here we obviously have a map of France. It's interesting to me how far north our, our setting is. This is Rouen, the little red uh, bubble thing there. And it's worth noting it's very, you know, far north. The weather would have been cold and a little grim. And they're right on the Seine. So it's this sort of this uh, bourgeois industrial setting in the north of France. Here is Flaubert himself. I'm really enjoying that walrus um, crazy mustache he's got and how it's nicely mirrored by that hairdo. Um, you know, he's looking like quite the fop in this picture. Then we have, by contrast, this incredible photo of Lydia Davis, our really, really bright, just general badass translator of not only Proust, I mean, sorry, not only Flaubert, but also of Proust, who just did a great job with Madame Bovary. This is the last standing building, the only thing that remains of the Flaubert family estate uh, near, um, in Yonville, I believe. Um, you know, again, a, a, an upper middle class family, surgeons, decent amount of money, cute little house. And here is Rouen. I was so happy to find this photo because it really gives us a sense of what this town might have looked like even when Madame Bovary was there. This is a smaller town um, nearby, but it really gives you that sense of that Norman architecture. And this is a hotel that was the inspiration for the Hotel de Boulogne, which is where Madame Bovary and Léon have their three-day honeymoon. And when you feel, if you look up um, images from Madame Bovary, there are lots and lots of artistic renderings of her death, which is just so macabre, but also kind of fitting. So here um, we have the agony, and here we have a slightly more pensive um, you know, duo by the bed. There are always lots of people around all of the various doctors not being able to do anything, and Charles in agony. Here's another image of Charles. I love this because this is kind of... Um, there's something about the closeness of the eyes, and, and um, I'm not even sure why, but these images are, um, these two both in particular, are um, pretty fitting with what I think of as Charles as being not the debonair rake that the rest of the men in the novel end up being. Here again, we have a slight, um, not exactly a buffoon, but we have a little bit of a, um, there, there's just something about this gentleman here uh, and his mustache that uh, makes me think of mediocrity. This, on the other hand, though, I left in the Ken Burns dramatic thing that's happening. I was zooming in to see him um, just because I think here, oh, here we are leaning back toward a slightly more homely version of Charles Bovary, which I think is a bit more fitting. And that's the amazing Isabelle Huppert. Here again, we have um, the same Isabelle Huppert, and this is, um, you know, a perhaps slightly more awkward version of our Charles Bovary. This Charles Bovary Country Doctor, this is a book I highly recommend by Jean-Amery. Uh, he was originally written in German, but it really um, imagines Charles as, as not being quite the uh, wimp that he is in Madame Bovary. Now, what follows are just a whole series of images. There's so, so, so many images of Madame Bovary. I think she's, um, you know, a, a character, uh, you know, in literature, obviously, who's had many different iterations, but certainly in the public um, sphere. So in movies and in films and in plays all through the ages. Um, this is like a very Scarlett O'Hara kind of moment here. I think the hat is making me think that. Um, so you have lots of, um, you know, throughout all of these different time frames, you know, beginning in the 19th century, these different artistic renderings, 
but again, I'm really enjoying um, some of the filmic ones. This I love, elle refuse de n'être qu'une victime, that she refuses to be just a victim, which I think is highly debatable as a sentence, as a tagline for Emma Bovary. <laughs> Looks like a beautiful film, um, but I'm not really sure that we can say she's a whole lot more um, than a victim of her circumstance. Uh, and here we have this beautiful sort of soft, um, you know, soft focus thing. I believe that might be Isabelle Huppert again. And here we have a much more dramatic and much more stark uh, vision, which actually appeals to me more. This is going to be toward the end uh, of the movie where Emma is in agony in more ways than one. And I love this image. This is an actress, uh, she's Australian, and she was actually in The Kids Are All Right, which was just a movie that I really loved. It was haunting me what else she'd been in. Um, and, and here we have a final vision, a very colorized vision of our Madame Bovary behind the veil. So thank you for taking the extra time to, to tune in. I hope uh, that these images have expanded your sense of the novel a bit. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Fox page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses, or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly a literary masterpiece. There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.